Welcome to this episode of Better Product Launch, where we're sitting down with the founder to give you an inside look into their new product launch. So today we're talking to Ariella Safira, founder and CEO of Real. Ariella has long been passionate about mental health care and founded Real as a resource to celebrate mental health. Ariella, it's so good to have you on the show today. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. To get started, I guess, tell us about Real. Real is a mental health care company really redesigning the way in which we, the way in which and the cadence at which we actually access, you know, therapy or mental health care as a whole. The real problem that we're solving for is the fact that so many people only access care when they've hit rock bottom, right? For so many people, the first time they go to therapy is when they've lost a loved one or gone through a divorce, a miscarriage, and we're really changing changing things such that you access care always, right? Not just in moments of crisis. And we're doing so through this omni-channel approach to our product. So both a brick and mortar studio where I am today um, and a digital platform, which is really our main focus right now. And that really democratizes care, making it more accessible for, for those throughout the country. Was the digital part always planned or was that something that you've evolved just you know, given, given COVID and things like that? We always plan to have a digital model that would scale care, but the actual model itself and what that looks like has evolved tremendously in large part due to the pandemic and what it's taught us. And more than that, we really sped up the, the launch of our digital platform because of the pandemic. So what was launched in August, this digital membership is something new. And if you had pitched, told me about it a year ago, I would have said, I've never heard of that. So you are from, you went to Stanford D school. That's right. Yeah. We're big fans of, and we've had a couple, I shouldn't say a couple. We've had, I think one other Stanford D school person on this show. So big fans. Yeah. So I should probably clarify that I actually studied math and computational science at Stanford, but all of my work was done in the design school with David Kelly, the founder of the D school and the founder of IDEO. So interestingly enough, while I spent a lot of time in product design. Um, my like intellectual interests were actually in math and my degree says math and not product design. But um, you, it looks like you acted a lot like a designer because you dropped out of your master's program to go start <laughs> real, which is the most designer thing to do. It's like, I'm no, I'm done with this. I actually want to go solve this now. Thank you. I think like spirit, spiritually, you're a designer. I think it's probably what that means. Yeah. <laughs> I loved the D school since I like first stepped foot in it at Stanford and um, obviously developed such a close like, professor-student relationship with David Kelly. Um, just didn't. I also loved math and wanted to take math classes. So I consider myself both. Um, but professionally speaking, and like what I want to change in this world, a lot of that thinking comes from the design school principles, IDEO, etc. I was going to ask you, and I don't know if this is in the right order, but I'm curious, your background and sort of the analytical side of you, how much of that is reflected in real? Because I'll be honest, looking at your site, I don't, it, it, it feels like very much on the opposite end of the spectrum. So I'm curious how much of that background has made its way into real. I actually think such a huge part of my thinking comes from math. I, people on the real team will tell you how often I reference my math professors from Stanford and that they really taught me how to think and how to be logical. And while I'm not necessarily doing calculus every day at real, I am bringing the methodologies that they taught me into even understanding, you know, when I think of the evolution of real and how I went from, I recognize that this doesn't seem to make sense to what real looks like today. So much of that was like building a proof really and, and thoughtfully thinking about 
what are the components of what, what is therapy supposed to give to a person? Like, what does it mean to actually be struggling? What does it mean to improve? And what are the ways in which people, the current system is not doing that? I mean, really, I think that thinking all came from math. And obviously what I plugged into it was a lot of the d-school thinking of, great, let's do interviews with psychologists today and interviews with designers who have built brick and mortar, like mental health studio or rather mental health clinics and, and wards, mental wards, sorry. Um, so this is all to say, I do think a huge part of my thinking comes from math. And I just applied the d-school on top of that. You kind of caught yourself there uh, referring to like the old way by saying studio and then stopped and said like, no, I can't remember what you said. Clinic. Clinics, I remember. Yeah. Anyway, it, it seems like there's some intentionality behind the use of the word studio in the way that you talk. Could you tell us a little more about what, what that means to you when it comes to mental health? Yeah. So we'd spent a lot of time early on thinking through not just the brick and mortar studio, but even today's digital format. Like what are the words and language we use to discuss this? Because I do fully believe those semantics are actually very important. And, you know, if we want people to treat this similar to how they treat online or in-person fitness solutions or how they treat, you know, the food that they eat or, you know, their annual physical, like we have to use similar language. Whereas the words that are often used in therapy today, words like clinic, diagnosis, ward, mental ward, right? If you ask a person, what do you associate those words with? It's only losing your mind, right? The only time they've ever heard the word mental ward is in books that reference someone losing their mind in jokes that reference losing your mind. And so much of our thinking comes from, well, what are the, the feelings that we want people to associate real with? It's most certainly not losing your mind, right? And what are the words that actually accomplish that successfully? So Studio, in terms of the brick and mortar format, was a great example of like, so often we associate studio with, you know, fitness studio and things that people, a place that people celebrate going to. Similarly, our digital format is called a membership, right, model. So really bringing in community driven words and language as opposed to the very like clinical jargon that people tend to be very like afraid of, right, associated with a very scary place and, and definitely a very shameful place. I'm curious. You make a really good point about the words, and it's definitely something that I never thought about, especially when it comes to something like mental health and how we talk about it. How do you continue to sell? Because I, I know when in reading about real, it's it's about celebrating mental health, right? It's about like celebrating who you are and feeling better. How do you continue to celebrate and change words without without it saying like we're we're changing what it is or in changing how we talk about it, we are it's like, it's a, it's more of a positive, it's having it be a more of a positive thing instead of a negative thing. Like we're not using those words because they have a negative connotation. And you can see that as a positive thing, but you could also see it as like, we're, we're looking past, you know, some of the realities of what it is. If that, if that's a clear question. I think so. I think you can make one out of it. Okay. Okay. Good. So essentially where this, this concept of we're, we're not, we're not normalizing therapy, but rather we're celebrating it. Where it came from is I think especially for me in the past five years, I've so often heard this concept of we're normalizing mental health. And in part, that makes no sense. Mental health is normal. We all have mental health. It's not doing a service to this body part by saying it's normal. And, and two, even more than that, to me, I always compare things, I often compare things to fitness in saying, like, if someone told me like, we're normalizing the gym, I'm not exactly excited to show up there, right? And this, like, the concept of elevating something in order to make it normal is 
suggests that it was quite abnormal to begin with. And instead, really what we're doing is saying, this is amazing that you're taking care of your mental health, right? And this is a sign of doing better and being better as opposed to a sign of being normal. Um, so really so much like the, the slogan itself of we're celebrating therapy comes from that. But even more than the slogan is how we approach every therapy pathway we build, our branding, you know, the therapists who we hire, like we're really bringing on people who view this as an exciting part of your life. And this idea of introspection and growth being representing brilliance and being incredible as opposed to representing like wonderful, you're now a normal human. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I, even in your example of like the gym, it's like the gym is normalized now, but it doesn't mean that everybody is going. So there has to be like some next level thing to get, get you there. So that, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back in time a little bit to understand what was there like a key moment that made real click in your head? Like, was there ever a moment where you said, oh my God, this is the thing? Or was it a slow building? And if so, where, when was that moment where you decided, I, I've got to do something about this? There was a clear moment when I knew I will now start building Real as a company. How when I describe the story of Real, I definitely describe its inception to be, you know, six to seven years ago when a friend of mine, a friend of mine attempted suicide. And that was really my big eye opener as to what mental health care looks like. It was the first time I'd ever seen a rehab, first time I ever really heard about meds and didn't think the system made sense. You know, I'd mentioned I was not a therapist. I was actually still a student at Stanford studying math and CS and just thought from like an empathetic friend perspective, this doesn't work. So I got in touch with David Kelly, who's the founder of the D School and, you know, told him about this problem I so wanted to solve. And at the time, it wasn't necessarily a, I want to start a company tomorrow. It was, oh my God, have you ever seen a rehab? This looks awful. <laughs> do you think they've been thoughtful about this at all? Uh, if not, do you want to work on this? And it really was a project of curiosity in the beginning. And he was a huge help in getting, helping me to get grants so that I can afford to, you know, fly to these rehabs, to these hospitals, visited architecture firms that built these therapy spaces, really to interview people and learning how do you make the decisions in mental health care that you make? You know, I wasn't interested in what is the DSM-5 or what is the PHQ-9, but rather understanding how we, you know, currently train mental health and instead very literally the, the black and white, like how are we making decisions? Who decided this clinic should look this way? And what determines success of this clinic? And is there research behind, you know, the bright white walls in, in, um, in patient mental health facilities, right? And if not, what does it take to change them? Are they financial hurdles? Are they legal hurdles? Really trying to understand the nitty gritty, like who are the decision makers in the room and why are they making the decisions that we're making? And from there, I actually did, I left Stanford. I thought I would drop out of Stanford undergrad. I left for a year. I biked America and then did a bunch of mental health research, thought I would drop out to found real. David Kelly undoubtedly is the reason why I came back and convinced me um, to return. So I came back with a lot of my remaining time at Stanford, continuing that research. And after that, just worked at, you know, IDEO New York, worked at um, a Google company designing the future of mental health care and healthcare, biked across a bunch of countries to fundraise for suicide prevention. And then most recently I'd gone to, as you mentioned, uh, grad school, I went to Columbia's clinical psych program to train to be a therapist. And uh, while I was there, just saw how sort of inefficient the system is from the therapist side as well, and dropped out to to found real. 
So yes, there was a clear moment where I decided now I'm going to start a company. I feel like I understand enough sides of this problem, but the the moment that I felt the mental health care system was problematic was six years ago. And for what it's worth, I feel like empathy and caring about people was just a part of my upbringing. And I'm, you know, my father was raised in a commune and very much instilled in us this idea of like community and taking care of others in a very intentional way from a young age. So I even think it's unfair to say it started six years ago. It sort of kind of was a part of me for a while. And just these, the words that would make it to an investor deck slowly made their way over the past six years. That's fascinating. And I, I was thinking as you're talking, we talk to people in healthcare or approaching other like really large systems. And I get a sense for with people we talk to, there's a certain amount of confidence or just like taking a leap where you just have to trust that maybe you've got a better way. You're like up against a really big sort of monolithic machine. Did, was, was that hard for you to do? Was it, was it hard to make that transition to think that, yes, this is huge, but I can do something about it? The problem just felt so obvious. You know, it didn't feel like rocket science. It didn't feel like I was developing the self-driving car. Instead, it felt like I fully understand people and I know the people who have gone through this system and I know they've, the system has failed them, that this doesn't take confidence. It just takes listening. And, you know, there are, for what it's worth, I think, I mean, mental health care more than other areas of healthcare feels so human in ways that like, I, I wouldn't as confidently approach understanding, you know, the the healthcare system behind brain tumors. Like maybe I would feel less relatable. Whereas mental health care, I felt such a sense of like this is being human, and this is like I understand suffering, and I understand can understand and relate to depression. And yeah, it didn't. I didn't feel a sense of like great. Now I need to strengthen up my backbone. Instead, it was like wow, this is clearly an issue. And for what it's worth, it's not. While I certainly have talked to people in the field who didn't understand my perspective, I also talked to many people who did. So with great help from psychologists, psychiatrists, professors at Columbia, you know, when I was considering leaving the program, the director of the program was a huge advocate for my way of thinking, my philosophy. He fully was like, yeah, I don't think you should become a clinician. I fully believe you should change what this looks like. So I think having the support of clinicians in the field just made it feel all the more obvious. Not even like rockets. It wasn't, it wasn't brilliant. It was just like, this just should have, it should have been this way from the get-go. And once you get to know the history of mental health care and how the system came to be and realize it so came from a place of desperation. It's not like we had a bunch of innovators and IDEO designers and intentional clinicians think like, all right, so if we built this system from scratch, what should it look like? No, instead we were constantly responding to, you know, to a suicide attempt. They're like, oh my God, this person must be crazy. Lock them up in a bright white room and like isolate them from anything that might make them crazy. And there wasn't a lot of thinking behind that. And there certainly wasn't intentional language behind that. Um, and I think the more you get to know the history of it and the origin, the more at least I've been able to see, see and feel confidently that, okay, this wasn't it's not like I'm up against a hundred years of thoughtful strategizing. I'm up against like a system with a ton of band-aids on it that many would agree needs changing. So thinking about we we talked we, we touched a little bit on the on the the sort of the, the product side at the beginning. I want to circle back around to it now. So you have a highly personal problem and you view it less as 
you know, disrupting a system that was very thoughtful. It just was sort of reactive and just sort of there. It's almost like you're creating this, this new future. But the contrast to me is, is real, that I want to understand is a highly personal or personalized problem um, meets technology. So I'd like to understand like from the core, um, and I know this got accelerated a bit with, with, with COVID, but like what, how from the core do you view technology um, factoring into solving this problem that's very personal? It's very important for me to note that I very intentionally describe us as a mental healthcare company that uses technology to enable growth as opposed to being a technology company. I think for a lot of health tech, it's almost like their premise is tech. Like how can we use tech to improve healthcare? And in our case and in my case, it's how can we improve mental healthcare? If the solution doesn't involve tech at all, wonderful, we won't use it. And if it does, which I think it does right now, then we'll use it. So first and foremost, definitely important to describe that sort of like positioning of where we're at. And second to that, your question was how we're using technology at Real. Really, its biggest lever is scale, right? I think the the real innovation isn't the technology as much as it is really the therapy that's being delivered. And what I, what I mean by that are our therapy pathways. So not sure how much context I've given on this, but therapy pathways are these 12 session therapy journeys. So we have a therapy pathway for exploring your sexuality, a therapy pathway for undoing your upbringing, a therapy pathway on sex and pleasure and understanding your body. And really what this offers is this, this map, this journey, this guide to your therapy experience. And even more than that, what, what putting it online does and making it digital is it allows for a community version of this pathway. So, you know, today you go to therapy, a one-on-one therapy appointment. And what honestly ends up happening is your therapist tells you, you know, hey, I have no idea how long it'll take you to feel better. I don't know what we're going to talk about. I have no previous examples of my work, but trust me, you'll feel better eventually at $300 an hour, right? And it's not the price point that's necessarily losing people. It's this lack of clarity, this indefinite black hole of an experience that like no one knows what's happening. Whereas what our pathways do is it gives people this structure and clarity such that they know what to expect. And by applying technology to it or making it digital, we're able to make it this community-driven experience such that essentially every week of the pathway, you're submitting questions with others. When the therapist posts a session, that session includes not just your questions, but other people's questions in the cohort, right? And with every week, the therapist also presents or offers a journal exercise, right? So that journal exercise might be, let's say we're in the body image pathway. The journal exercise might be look in the mirror naked, how do you feel? Walk me through your thoughts, right? Or it might be a write a letter to yourself on your last first date. You know, what would you tell yourself? What this allows for is like that's sort of the like processing moment for people to have the chance to actually process what the session sort of taught them. And outside of that, the session is really walking through themes, trends, topics related to the, the overlying topic, right? Be it exploring your sexuality, undoing your upbringing. So it kind of allows for this hybrid approach of teaching you about the topic, giving you language and theories to work from such that you can better understand your story, you know, journal exercises to go ahead and then act on that introspection and the opportunity to submit your questions, hear other people's questions such that you're not just benefiting from what your own brain can think of, but also, you know, such a huge piece of feedback we receive from others is, wow, it's so helpful to hear other people's questions because that is relevant to me, but I wouldn't have thought of that. So this is all to say technology is what really allows for this to be 
a community-driven experience. And what I should add to that is it allows for you to engage anonymously, right? So a big learning that we received and that we found in April when we put up this very short-term offering in response to COVID-19, a big learning is that people wanted the benefits of group. They wanted to hear other people's questions. They wanted a therapist to teach them, but they didn't want anyone to know they were there, right? They didn't want to join a group on infidelity, right? Or a group on exploring your sexuality, but they certainly wanted to benefit from that, that content, from that experience. And what this digital format allows for is for people to have those benefits of group without exploiting themselves. That's super interesting. And like, as, as you're talking, it's like disrupting my own like personal models of how I understand therapy, just even the community aspect of it, I think is really interesting. And the way that you are approaching and, and, you know, the very, the clearness of which you say that, you know, we are basically your, your methodology is what leads the way the, the therapeutic methodology and the technology is just a way to kind of enable that. And I'm curious how that philosophy drives how you prioritize the tech, how you think about building the tech, like how, making sure that it's completely facilitating this and you are not a tech company. How does that influence the, how you build it? Because tech is a part of the, of the company, I still respect it, you know, with the utmost importance. But what's important to acknowledge is the reason why tech is in the room is not because we decided we're a tech company or because we need tech in the room. It's because it improves care. It's because we believe it improves mental health outcomes. So with that said, we devote a tremendous number of resources to the product team, both in terms of literal hires and the respect that that team is given and are very intentional about the hires that come on. You know, we're growing that team right now. And I have like a very, I'd like to think like thoughtful philosophy on what companies we want to recruit from and who has the insights that I think mental health care has never had, you know, something really amazing about tech that healthcare is lacking is the focus on users, right? I think healthcare forever has had like a firm philosophy of what treatment looks like. And this is just what treatment looks like. And if this doesn't work for someone, the patient failed as opposed to like, no treatment failed then. Right. And in many ways, I think the tech industry has a more humble approach to building solutions in, in thinking like if this solution didn't land well, right? If we didn't acquire users, if we didn't retain users, the problem is not the user. The problem is the solution that we thought was a solution and clearly isn't. And so that's really where I think we benefit from product leaders, engineers, people who approach this as like, so what are the company's goals? And how are we accomplishing it? So it's not like we have a bunch of code monkeys who are just responding to doctors saying we need a button here. Instead, we have user research, user researchers and user experience designers and, you know, product leaders who are defining like, what does someone need in order to improve their mental health? How can we achieve that? Right. So it's not just like a CMS tool to put up therapy videos. Instead, it's thinking, like, so what, what does someone need to feel rewarded for working on their mental health, even if their mental health itself is actually getting worse, right? And like, what can we build in this product such that someone wants to continue doing this week after week? How can the product itself, the digital product, make someone know like, the moment they sign on that loads of people are on this? Like, you are not isolated for it. You are not the only one. You're not the only one who experienced infidelity. And you are certainly not the only one questioning your sexuality. And on top of all that, it's awesome that you're here to figure it out, right? And I think the, you know, the therapy session in our case is one hour a week, but the product is something you can engage with always. So this is all to say, we treat it with like the utmost respect. And I so admire a lot of the 
philosophies that the tech industry has really like created and almost innovated on definitely compared to some other industries. But we do remember and the full company remembers that the goal is to improve mental health. If we found that therapists didn't improve mental health, we wouldn't hire therapists. The goal is not even to have therapists. The goal is to improve mental health outcomes. And we've been thoughtful in thinking a therapy team and a product team are two teams that would really bring that to life, as would a marketing team and an operations team. I want to touch a little bit on really just the design, the visual design and the, and the brand around this in a second. But um, I'm, I'm curious, when you look at Reels Impact, what what do you consider? Well, actually, let me start at, at a user. So how do you determine whether you're succeeding with, with users today? And then an extension of that, like long-term, how do you know that, do you have like audacious goals or do you have like a world that you you, you hope that you've, you've helped create? But I guess I'll start with people today. How do you sort of determine that you're, you're succeeding um, at, at helping with, with the therapy? Yes, there are three ways that we look at it. You know, important to note, like our goal is to bring mental health care to a population who doesn't currently reach, which is like 99% of the population, and to ensure it becomes a part of their everyday, not just a crisis management tool, and to actually improve their mental health, right? So with that means success for us looks like, one, ensuring we bring people, people make use of our product who wouldn't otherwise go to therapy, but we're reaching people beyond the 0.1% who go to therapy today. Two, making sure they stick with this, right? We don't want this to be a cyclical, I came for five sessions because I had a divorce and now I'm gone for six years until I lose a loved one capturing engagement, and three, capturing improvement in mental health. So using a few mental health assessments, including the Real 10, which is one that was built in-house, really co-created by our entire clinical team and largely by our chief medical officer and our head of therapy, which is meant to be a much more user-friendly mental health assessment, and happy to dive into that more. But point being, we're measuring clinical efficacy on a monthly basis to actually see what improvement looks like over time. Is that different? Are you doing it differently than the way it's done today? I, I don't know, know the space, but, but is that something that you've innovated on as well? Yeah. So today, data tracking in mental health care is not very common. You know, your everyday therapy appointment is not necessarily a place that you're being asked to complete the PHQ-9 or the GAD-7. More often, those clinical assessments are used in hospital settings or inpatient mental health facility settings, rehabs. Whereas, you know, your weekly therapist is not necessarily capturing that and not many digital tools are either. So it is very new to actually be tracking data. And the real 10 itself is a completely new mental health assessment that was built by us. So as a, well, I should just say former designer because I'm not actively designing anything anymore. I just critique things. But looking at your site, I mean, it's and I always like to look at sites while hearing like a founder's talk and just, it just almost seems like the perfect manifestation of like what's in your head in your head. And I think a lot of what you're saying, like somehow everything on the site just feels like this was the thing it was supposed to look and speak like. So I'd love to l- learn a little bit about you know how you got that vision out in your head into the, the, the beautiful illustrations that we're seeing, the, the, the color palette. I mean, you're using like a brown, which is, I mean, commendable. Nobody uses that well and you, you do in your site. So all those sorts of decisions, how, uh, how, how did that get out of your head into the site that we're seeing today? From the get-go, the goal was for this to feel human and real, if you will, while feeling celebratory. 
as all of the slogans imply. And so with that, it was very clear from the get-go, these sort of like natural colors would be a part of the process. Our our creative director is the greatest human in the world, and I love her so deeply. She was with it before funding even hit the bank um, now over a year ago. Um, and, you know, we had must have gone through tens of color palettes, all starting with the natural greens and browns and trying to make it like, okay, how can I have this realness, this level of like, not natural like dirt, though I love dirt, but more of like, how can this feel human and real and like you without the blandness that three tones of brown might offer? And, you know, went through a ton of color palettes and ultimately was actually one of our engineers who was a huge proponent for the color blue and tested it in a few tones. And it felt that it really, it really nailed it. And this feels human and real and alive, not necessarily playful. You know, I go back and forth and like how often we use the word fun because not every component of real is fun, right? Diving into childhood traumas is not always fun, but we did want it to feel lively and celebratory. And, you know, not every component of a fitness class is fun. You're hauling ass. It's like exhausting, right? But you still leave feeling good and accomplished, right? And this a feeling of even if Soul cycles bright yellow, and I'm not like smiling all the time. <laughs> um, I feel good for being there, and so similarly, we wanted to embody that this is human, and you should feel good for being here. You know, what strikes me is that you do that while being authentic, because I think even some of the brands that you've mentioned, I think sometimes can err on the side of being almost superficial to to the extent where it's like you're 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 going. You, you so for your your case, you could be over celebratory where it almost like it's not even just the fact that therapy's not always going to be fun but even the words and things you could do could almost make you feel like this doesn't feel like authentic but what i take from this is like you you have these these visuals that that go along it are very human but you also are very specific about the things that you do on the site. So it's very clear that, that, that you, you get um, what you get when, when you sign up. So I think you, you do a really good job balancing those together. Again, I don't have a question. Just wanted to say that. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, I credit one of my math professors, actually he's a computer science professor, but he taught a math class or a few. I, I credit him for that really way of thinking. I promise the story is relevant. <laughs> he, um, he was an incredibly thoughtful teacher, which is quite rare for like, university professors, um, and essentially had learned, I'm not sure if it was his own research or if he read it, but essentially had learned that putting smiley faces on every single math slide will make students learn better, do better in the class. And the the reasoning behind that was so often in these other fields, it feels like, I mean, the design school in general, the, the English department, these places are actually aesthetically brighter. The design school is filled with colorful post-it notes, right? It's inviting even before you've started listening to the professor, right? Whereas so often the math department, and certainly at Stanford, the math department is filled with chalkboards, right? And the, the coloring is more dull. The students aren't necessarily students who are walking with bright blue hair, right? The environment doesn't feel fun. And and his takeaways, like this is scarier because the environment itself is scary. Whereas if I put a bright yellow smiley face on every single slide, you will feel better about this material. You'll feel more confident approaching it and you will do better. And he had proven that it worked. And I can tell you going through the 250 page decks he built that would otherwise be horrifying, easy to reach his black hole. Like, I don't get it. I don't get it. I was constantly uplifted with 
a smile and felt like I can go to the next one, right? There are smiley faces on this. And I often reference this at real and think that we embody it very much. Of Yeah, not every slide and not every session is going to be fun and easy. But I think when you have like a whimsical approach to it, you, you feel supported and encouraged to move forward in ways that you don't necessarily do with everyday math books. I think that really like it comes kind of full circle to what you were talking about initially with like the the wording and like the verbiage of mental health and how it's like thinking about that differently where it's maybe some math departments are designed to intimidate and they don't have to be and it's not it's not the best way to learn so it's it's going back and like like breaking up those classic structures of kind of how we've always done things up to this point and I I agree with with what uh, Christian was saying about the brand I think it's a really good balance that you didn't go into spa territory either. Cause I think that's what a lot of brands in this area do. So yeah, the I'm broad and blue. I'm, I'm with you. That, that engineer was, was right on. For what it's worth, I actually had created a very visually not appealing, <laughs> ugly deck early on. Um, so Reese is the creative director who I'm referencing. And when we were getting started on the brand design, I had built again, a hideous deck. That was just slides on slides of what real is and what real isn't and using in part like what colors real is, what colors real is not, what ads real is, what ads real is not, examples of locations that real is and is not and is not had like spas so it, and even words of like real is comforting, but it's not sleepy, right? And it's so helpful. I was essentially just walking from location to location in New York City, varying from like therapy locations, like therapy offices, therapy clinics to spas, to fitness studios and capturing, you know, like what are the elements of SoulCycle I do not want to bring into real? And what are the elements of New York Sports Club I do not want to bring into real versus do? And had a just long list of photos and words and people that represented one thing versus another. And I think, I think in general, Reese just quickly gets it and we have very similar personalities. Uh, she's a better human than I am, but I think we're similar in a lot of vibes. But also, just we spent a lot of time drawing out places, people, language that captures versus does not capture real. So, um, what's next for real? And first and foremost, we just launched our digital membership at the end of August. So, really seeing that through and ensuring that engagement I talked about carries through. So, building new pathways, building and by pathways, like the topics themselves, right, and learning. Um, not just what members want today, but what does a member want after they do, the, they do their first pathway, right? I fully believe people will be willing to dive deeper and into more intimate topics after they've maybe started with something more on the surface or high level. And beyond that, you know, we have a lot in store even in just the next three months that are very related to our mental health, be it the elections, the election coming up, holidays, potentially another, you know, another wave of the pandemic, if you will, and another intense quarantine. And with all of that, I think comes on our end, programming and really just understanding where members are at. The election anxiety itself is, you know, our chief medical officer has spoken about this um, very publicly. And this anxiety really surpasses so much that humanity has experienced before. And we are here to both be a place to alleviate that anxiety and to work on like, how can I have these hard conversations? And how can I feel grounded and even like a purpose for living during a time that feels so beyond my control. So it's certainly a big problem to be to be working on, but something that for the next three months, we're we're pretty excited to be solving. And, you know, beyond that, you know, we're 
continuing to like spark the societal shift as it relates to mental health care and still scaling throughout the country. How can we build this norm and this, this behavior that is, I always take part in my mental health, not just in moments of crisis and to do so via our digital platform. And in the next 12 months, I foresee the brick and mortar studio opening as well. Very cool. You mentioned making kind of access to therapy, access to mental health more accessible. So beyond technology, obviously technology is a way to to really make that accessible. Are there other things that you feel like you're doing to to also kind of reach those people, like you said, those 99% who, who aren't in therapy? Yeah, so there's two other ways I'd probably share. One is the price point, and two is, for lack of a better word, the ability to engage with care before someone's ready to talk about their issues aloud. So on a price point perspective, you know, as you might know, care, you know, in New York City, the price of a single therapy appointment ranges from 200 to $500 a session. I've had a therapist quote me $800 for a first session. And obviously for so many people, that alone is a reason to never access care, regardless of how comfortable and ready you are to actually make that step. Whereas Reels Digital Membership is coming to $28 per month, and that comes with content that you can access on a weekly, if not daily basis. So spending $7 a week and rather than a $300 or $800 a week is a, a huge game changer. You know, therapy today, is it's not just inaccessible to most, it's, it's inaccessible to nearly everyone, right? Like I would, I haven't done the numbers myself, but I would bet at least 98% of the country cannot afford $300 a week for therapy, right? So the price point is hugely disruptive, if you ask me. And the second piece is, as I'd mentioned, I don't think it's only the price point that stops people from reaching care. I think the one-on-one therapy appointment today, might, the traditional one, might be a great idea. What I like to say is it's for the emotionally elite, right? It's for the people who are very comfortable, or at least fairly comfortable, talking about what's going on in their life. And people who have the language to do so right? People who literally know the words to use to explain infidelity, sex and pleasure, et cetera. And the vast majority of people aren't there. The vast majority of people are at a place where I'd love to improve my mental health. And like, maybe I can name some things that aren't working well, Like I don't know beyond that. Right. And it's almost like we need to meet them where they're at and give them an opportunity to like learn and almost give them a menu of options such that they can use that to understand their own stories. And so much of our content, our pathways, our events, et cetera, really give people that menu and that opportunity to work on their mental health, even before they're at a place where they could speak aloud to a therapist for $300 an hour. That was a really lovely conversation with, with Ariel talking about real and talking about the sort of modernizing mental health. But I think that there's a lot of unique ways that she's approaching it that's a little bit different from from a lot of the digital products that we talk to on this show. Anna, what what would you say is one of the you know, key distinguishing sort of like factors in, in the way that she's approaching this space? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, she was very clear with us that, you know, they are not, she's not, she's not building a tech company. She's building a company that is basically a, a mental health, a therapy company that is tech enabled. So a tech enabled service. So they have the studio. It's almost like she wants to get 
this kind of program out into the world. Tech is a way that they're doing it. The studio is kind of another way that they're doing it. So it was interesting that it's 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 all about the philosophy. It's getting the philosophy out into the world and just like, this is the best way we're going to do this right now. Just like she said, like, we've got goals. And if there was a, if I having, not having therapists could help me get this out in the world, I wouldn't have therapists. Just kind of like mission oriented and tech is just one of those things driving her to her goals. Yeah, I think at some point she said something like, usually companies that are doing it are almost using tech to improve healthcare. Um, but but she more talks about like how they're just using it to enable a lot of that. And I think you see that represented on their website. So I don't know that that the website, I, I was almost going to say you can't really tell who they are, but that sounds negative. It's almost, it's more probably appropriate to say that the site is much more targeted towards mental health. And so like you start resonating with like the approach to mental health and then however tech is supporting it is almost like just a part of it, but you're not actually buying it. It's almost like the extreme example, I guess, in today's day and age would be like, you know, using AI to automate mental health or something where you're like just talking to a bot or something like that would be like the extreme version that I think that she's almost like the opposite to where it's much more enabling, I guess, human to human interaction with technology and, and maybe using it to facilitate scale of a great solution rather than making tech the, the sort of like centerpiece of it. I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, it's a different take very much so. Like, just like you said, like she's like, we're not it's not a place where you can just come watch videos about, you know, different issues or something. It's like more of like everything they do every, it it sounds like, I don't know that she would speak this way, but I would, I would assume that the, the way they think about their roadmap and the features they build is to enable the ways they want people to interact with the content with, with each other. It's all driven by, like she said, those therapeutic pathways. So it's, it's more like, it, it makes sense that, you know, she mentioned, you know, that product and tech are really bringing a user-centered focus to mental health, but her solution in and of itself is very, very user-centered. It's very rethinking. It's it's very classic, like design thinking. It's kind of go, stepping all the way back to the core and asking, why are things like this? And, and, and what have we accepted that we don't have to accept? What you're saying is reminding me too of, of, as she was talking, I was thinking of some other approaches in different industries, fairly similar. And one I thought about was Headspace, you know, the, the app for, for helping, you know, create a habit of meditation sounds very familiar because you, you mentioned the pathways that she's talking about and where this is a show about product, but I want to talk about that because I think it's one of the great ways that you can get people to get focused on the right thing rather than the product itself. And so I would say even people that probably engage with, with, with real probably think less about that and probably think more about obviously the therapy, but if they were to probably categorize like, what is, you know, what do you like about really probably say the pathways headspace is similar in the way they've tried to get people to meditate where they they use these different sort of collections or different meditations that are much more centered around real life issues. Like if you've got, you know, a big presentation coming up, or if you've got something like flying coming up, they, they gear these meditations around there. And you're right. It's very design thinking oriented because it, it takes the thing that it is and like really centers it on, centers it on you. So it's not even just like, I'm getting therapy. It's like, I'm going to work out issues with, with sexuality or whatever it is and in following that pathway. I really appreciate that approach to, to product. Yeah. And I, I also appreciated the way she talked about accessibility too, about how I think that there were two levels and we, and we kind of, we kind of talked about them. We, we talked about them, but I don't know that we like really pulled them apart, but there's the accessibility of like 
people who just don't go see a therapist, you know, unless there's something that really, 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 really happens. But then there's the other side of people who just like can't articulate. Even if I were to see a therapist, I I don't know what I would talk about. I don't know what's like, I, I've not, I've not had a driving event. You know, I just like, I know that I don't feel great. It's like, I think she called it like the emotionally articulate, like not everyone is that way where they can articulate what's bothering them, what their problem is, what they want to work on. So even just like having these like therapeutic pathways to say, well, like, why not come to the body image pathway? You know, I, I know enough to know that like, maybe like this could be something that's good for me. So I don't have to necessarily go to a therapist and say, here is my problem or, or even like do an intake. And I thought that that was like an interesting way to kind of, you can, you can see that she is not taking anything for granted in this space. She is literally, I, I would imagine she has broken everything down that has to do with mental health and is now kind of building it back up in, in the, in, in that more user-focused way. And as opposed to like a more clinical focused way, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's even, I mean, I, we could talk about this for even longer. It's like you, you also talked about another point that she made about making it celebratory. And that reminded me that I really appreciated how I, she mentioned the system not working, but it wasn't like the focus, like you don't even see it on the site. Like, did you do see that? Like, Oh, the system is broken or this isn't working. We're here to disrupt it or here to fix it. I think a lot of that backdrop is true in her case, but rather than like fix it or focus on that broken system, she's just like, here's this other way of doing therapy and we're going to celebrate that. And it's just rather than focus on the negative or the thing that's not working, we're just going to build this new thing and start attracting people to it. And there's something really confident. And I guess, I don't know, just more like soulful or delightful in an approach like that, that makes you want to follow rather than just like focusing on the things that aren't working. So that, that, that really came through a lot. Yeah. It's, it's not like, like if you were to draw like a fitness comparison, it's, it's less like it's less CrossFit and more maybe bar. Like it's less like join the tribe and more like, this is another way to do something. This is a different way to go about it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And so I, I think uh, it was a great talk with her because I think she, I, I love that when we get to talk to founders, because I think when, when the earlier stage companies too, you can see somehow you can see the product like you or hear it, I guess, in the interview itself. I think she she really uh, embodied the the product. You can really hear uh, where it came from. So it was a really nice uh, interview, and and thought it made a lot of sense the approach that she's taking. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're looking for more resources on how to design, build, market, and sell better products, then head over to betterproduct.community to join. Well, the community. And as always, we're curious, what does better product mean to you? Shoot us an email at podcasts at innovatemap.com.